been going through this series called Small Story, Big Story. We're continuing this week where we're looking at some of the iconic and sometimes maybe overlooked stories in our scripture library and finding out how these, these small stories point us toward the big story of who God is and who we're called to be, of, of God's love in our world and our part to play in that. And, and this week, the story that we have to tell is a fish story. And you might know where I'm going with this one. But, uh, but I know fish stories. I grew up in Panama City, Florida, as I've said before. And so if there's one kind of story that I know, it's fish stories. I've heard them. I have told them. I have every once in a while believed them, too. Uh, I love a good fish story. A uh, fish story like the story of my grandfather who, was, who took a family friend, Sam, out to fish with a group of, that he was fishing with, out to the barrier islands for the very first time. And the practice in those places is that you'd go out into the surf and you'd wade into the water to fish. And when you caught something, you'd collect it on a stringer that you would tie onto your belt loop that would float in the water behind you. And the friends arrived at the island and everyone was getting ready to go and they're getting their stringers tied onto their belt loop. Everybody except for the new guy, Sam, who misunderstood what was happening and tied it around his belt. Um, Which wasn't a big deal until it was. And so they're out fishing, and Sam realized why the belt part was important when a six-foot sand shark came and grabbed the stringer and took off through the water, pulling him by his belt, like skipping like a stone through the waves as he's frantically trying to get his belt undone and drug him for like a mile, the fish story says. And I've been told that this was a true, more or less, story about fish story stuff. So my granddad's gang really needed to improve their friend onboarding training of, you know, how to be a part of their group, or maybe they didn't, because fish stories are way better when you don't train the new people in the midst of it, too. So I love fish stories, Uh, and as you might expect from a literature that emerges out of the Mediterranean culture and ancient Near Eastern world, our, our scripture library that we gather around has its share of fish stories in the midst of it, too. There's one story that stands above them all in the way we understand it. It's the story of Jonah and the big fish, or Jonah and the whale, which is, as this book says, a hard-to-swallow tale. (laughs) But it is what we get as kids. It's the fish story that we get in faith spaces as kids, basically because whales are cool and super cute if you do the smile right. That's why we tell this story. But here's the thing that we didn't learn as kids. The book of Jonah is so much more than a fish story. In fact, it is this wild, crazy, subversive, humorous parody of a prophetic book. Seriously, it's a a parody that, like many parodies, turns the mirror and the critique on the readers, on the religious community that's reading it, and on religion's tendency oftentimes to lean toward being judgmental and exclusive and combative. And instead, this parody opens up a wide, expansive vision of God's love for all people. That if God is like a parent or a father in some ways, then God is a parent that loves their children wildly and generously and inclusively, all of us. And Jonah, in this story, is a representative of religious folks sometimes who just can't deal with that kind of love of God. And so life grabs Jonah by the belt and just drags him for a wild ride. You got to go through the belt loop, Jonah. That's a good life lesson there. So Jonah is so much more than a fish story. In fact, the fish part of the story, believe it or not, is just a minor blip in the whole story. There's four chapters in Jonah, and basically the fish part takes place in two verses with a poem in between. The whole of the book of Jonah is so much more than that. 
Jonah is like a Saturday Night Live telling of a prophet's journey. It's a wild parody of religious literature. It's larger than life. It's often purposefully ridiculous and absurd, yet like the best humor, there's sharp insight at its core. And along the way, the book has a lot of sharp things to say to us about God, about us, about religion's tendency toward judgmentalism, particularly toward those who might be standing on other sides. But above it all, about God's transforming love for all of us, for our neighbor, and especially those who cross the way, and our invitation to join in that kind of love. And so Jonah, fish and all, is really something. And so let's dive in to that story today. So Jonah begins, like, like any other prophetic book, with this familiar line. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And every other prophetic book begins like this. And so the readers knew how it was going to go. And sure enough, the word comes and it says, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Which, you know, is an interesting way to start a sermon. But in this case, it was like legit because Nineveh in the 8th century BCE, when this story is set, was a legit tough place. They were notoriously violent and militaristic and cruel. They were kind of like the Ramsey Boltons of the ancient world for the Game of Thrones fans out there. Um, And at the time when this story is set, they were Israel's arch nemesis, their most despised opposition. So everyone who's reading this and they see Nineveh come up, they're like, oh, it's about to go down for Nineveh and Jonah is going to bring it to them. And then you get to the next verse. This is what it says. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Jonah fled. Jonah was like, nope. (laughs) And everybody reading it is like, wait, wait, what? Prophets don't say nope. They don't flee. And besides, Nineveh was the exact opposite way of Tarshish. Tarshish was the last known port in the known world, in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And so it's like saying, right here off the bat, you're reading this prophet story, and you're like, oh yeah, I know this, I know this. And all of a sudden, it's like God says, go to Fort Worth. And so Jonathan went to Nova Scotia. Like, you know, it's a good idea in Texas in June to head in that direction, but it's like totally the wrong direction. And so the original readers are like, wait, what, what's going on here? And the story of Jonah, the son of Amittai, takes this unexpected turn. Amittai means faithful and reliable and true, and Jonah means dove. And so we meet this prophet Jonah, the son of faithfulness, this peaceful dove who in many ways is there to represent the pious readers, who in fact is the most unfaithful character in the book, and a dove who wants God to blow up everyone who's against him. But we'll get to that part of the story in a little bit. And so Jonah is running from God's invitation to go to Nineveh. And maybe at the first glance it's because he's scared of Nineveh. But actually there was something that was going on deeper in Jonah, as we'll see in a bit. But for right now, suffice to say, he's on the run. And he gets onto this boat and he heads out from Tarshish. And a huge storm comes that threatens to destroy the ship. And the sailors are all freaking out on the boat. And to figure out what's wrong, the story says that they cast lots to find out who's to blame. Basically, they get out a Ouija board and they move it around. And it says that Jonah is the culprit. Jonah is to blame. And so they go and find Jonah. And Jonah's asleep down at the bottom of the ship, sleeping through it all. Because we've all had roommates like that. Or we've been roommates like that, if you remember me. Uh, And so they get, get him and they wake him up. And they're like, dude, dude. Who are you and what have you done? (laughs) And Jonah comes clean to them. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I'm running from the God who made everything, who invited me to go to Nineveh, and I don't want to go. And so just throw me overboard, and everything will be fine. And the sailors are like, dude, we're not going to throw you overboard. What kind of people do you think we are? Just tell God you're sorry. (laughs) And instead, they start rowing as fast as they can toward the shore. But after a little bit, they realize that they're not going to make it. And so Jonah's like, hey, guys, last chance, throw me overboard. And the sailors apologize, and they pray to whatever God is listening to them. And they say, dear God, this guy insists on being thrown overboard. We're really sorry. Please don't hold this innocent blood against us. But here we go. And so they pick up Jonah, and they throw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging, the story says. And that's where the fish part takes place. So Jonah splashes down into the water of the ocean. But instead of Jonah drowning, Jonah receives this rescue in the form of a fish that comes and swallows him up, the story says. But the Lord provided this big fish, this large fish, to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And at this point, if you're reading this, and you're an ancient Israelite reading this story, your mind is just spinning because this story just keeps going and getting wilder and wilder. It's like a whose line is it anyway improv scene where it's like, and then a storm happened, and then a fish came, and then you know, a carload of boy bands came and showed up. And it's just getting wilder and wilder and wilder. But the fish part is kind of this turning point because it's another place where Jonah receives a little kindness that he might not have earned, a little mercy and grace in the midst of his journey. There were sailors who tried to protect him, even at danger to themselves. There was a fish that kept him from drowning and gives him a free ride to dry land. Apparently, the rider didn't, rider didn't know that you could just have a shark drag him all the way to shore if you wanted to. But the fish gives him a ride, and then the story says... The Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. And the Hebrew word spewed is exactly what you imagine. (laughs) The whale hurl, or the fish hurls Jonah onto the shore. And there he finds himself right back where he started, just a little messier. But he gets a second chance because there's a God who's patient with us on our journey. Even those of us who are slow learners and fast fleers, God is kind. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the message that I will tell you. And so the second time, Jonah listens, albeit begrudgingly. And he goes to Nineveh, which he considered the most terrible city, full of the most terrible people, so much that he would rather go to Nova Scotia than go to Nineveh. And he prepares to deliver a message to them, and he preaches a powerful sermon which is five words long in Hebrew, (laughs) and eight in English. Let's just say I've I've never preached a sermon quite like that before. So Jonah goes to the city, and here is his sermon. He says, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's it. I'm sure he told some dad jokes in the midst of that somewhere, but that was basically like what he says. And the people of Nineveh, the story says, this is continuing this wild story. Nineveh hear this compelling sermon, and they're like, Wow, that is a great point, prophet man. Um, Hey, everybody, let's change our ways. And that is what the story says happens. And there's this great overblown vision, and this is what it says in 5 and 6. It says, The people of Nineveh believe God, and they proclaim a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. They put on this, like, burlap, which was a sign of remorse. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose up from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in ashes, just going to the next level, and makes a proclamation to Nineveh, 
By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal or herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed. They shall not drink water. We're going to fast together as a sign of our remorse. And then it goes on and says, human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth. Apparently, the, they made their puppies wear little remorse sweaters <laughs> as they went around. And they shall cry mightily to God. And all shall turn from their evil ways and all of the violence that is in their hands. There's this moment of total over-the-top transformation, which is ironic because when you read like the prophets going to the Israelite kings and queens and religious leaders, oftentimes those leaders don't listen, and they keep on with their oppressive and, and bigoted and unjust practices, and they never change. But this prophet goes to Nineveh, the most hated enemy of all, and the Ninevites are like, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, I'm ready and I'm willing to listen and learn and change. And I'm ready for my puppies to change too in the midst of this. And so God's heart is warmed by this response. But Jonah is ticked. <laughs> this is what it says. It says, this was very displeasing to Jonah. And Jonah became angry. And the reader's like, wait, wait, what's going on here? Jonah, you preached five words. You were the most efficient prophet ever. What gives? And so let's let... Jonah speak for himself. Jonah says this. Praise the Lord and says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew you are a gracious God and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you are ready to relent from punishing. God, you were going to be kind and gracious and loving to the Ninevites. Golly gee willigers, that makes me so mad. And so now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live, is the outcome. Like Jonah is a dr drama king, for sure. Dro Jonah wants Nineveh gone. And he knew God was going to be loving and kind and gracious, and that's why he did not want to go. This from Jonah, who got his own mercy and second chances from sailors and from God and from a big old fish. And so this hypocritical prophet wanted the people of Nineveh to get vengeance. He wanted payback. He wanted no soup for them is what he wanted for Nineveh. And that was Jonah's vision for how the world should work. A judgmental, exclusive, rule-based, hard-lined, victorious, conquering, winner-take-all vision of religion. That was Jonah's vision. But that's not the way that God sees the world and sees us all. Because God isn't interested in payback. God wants to bring us back to life and goodness and flourishing, all of us, no matter what country we live in. To bring us back to life and goodness, to bring us back to God, to bring us back together in mutual interdependence. This is what love your neighbor and even love those that consider yourselves their enemy Pray for them and wish them a best. This is what this vision is all about. And it is part of God's vision for all humanity that we need the flourishing of each other in order to flourish ourselves. And it's the message that we are called to embody, to be the message of our lives, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's one of those messages that's so much easier in theory than in practice, as Jonah can attest. But that's always been God's vision for humanity. And so you remember that little five-word sermon from Jonah, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Well, in great dramatic irony, 
The Hebrew word for overthrow can also mean to transform, to be made new, to be changed. And so when, he, when Jonah realizes that God's vision all along was not to chastise, but to change, not to destroy, but to restore, he is so mad. <laughs> what is the point of religion, he says, if we can't be better or more right than someone else at someone else's expense? And so God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about my love for the Ninevites? And Jonah passive-aggressively says nothing at all. Instead, Jonah goes out of the city, sat down east of the city, made a booth for himself there, sat down under the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city with his arms crossed, I'm sure. And on this Father's Day, any parent of a toddler recognizes exactly what's going on here. Jonah is pouting. Um, Jonah is throwing a fit. And it's also important to recognize the kind of parent that God is. That God is a God who loves all of God's children. God is at work in every life, in every culture, in every religion to bring us life and to bring us back together. That God invites us as children of God to be at work in our world for the same thing. And that God is merciful to the Ninevites and even to pouty Jonah. (laughs) After all, as we read Paul quoted in, in Acts today, Paul was actually quoting poetry from a different religion and a different culture to point out what is universally true, that we too are all God's offspring, all beloved children of God, all siblings in some way in this world, us, and even those who seem to be standing on the other side. In the words of Mother Teresa, she says that we seem to have forgotten that we belong to each other. And this book of Jonah, this parody of a prophet, This satire has this way of telling us about sometimes what being religious leads us to. This way of regarding people on the outside or each other. And it's trying to tell us and remind us of the fact that we are bound up in each other. And so the book of Jonah is slipped secretly into the library of Scripture. And using humor and irony, it helps us lift our eyes from our own tribe to see each other and to see our profound interconnectedness, that we truly belong to each other. That everyone you meet, whether in Denton or in Nineveh, no matter their age or their race or their gender, their religion or their orientation or their affiliation, no matter their politics or perspective, no matter their passionate sports fandom, whether they root for burnt orange or maroon or mean green or really just the rainbow whenever they get a chance to root, that everyone you meet is someone that God loves and longs for the best for. And that our God, who is parent of all, invites us to love and long for the same thing in our world. And loving those around us uh, definitely does not mean or invite us into subjecting ourselves to, to harmful or dangerous or toxic relationships. We're called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and we must love and stand for ourselves in love. It definitely doesn't mean to say nothing in the face of injustice. Jonah was, in the midst of this story, sent to Nineveh with a definitive word to speak against the injustice there. But the question for us is whether the words that we speak are meant to hurt or to help, whether they're about payback or whether they're about bringing us back together, whether our hope for Nineveh is for it to be destroyed or for it to be transformed. We're invited to let our words be words of help, of hope, 
of healing, of transformation, and for our work in the world to be the same. And as we go through life, if we see someone stringing their stringer through the belt and not the belt loop, just to like help them out a little bit, for goodness sake, or at least to get it on video when it's happening so they can be internet famous. So Jonah is learning this lesson, kind of, but he has one more lesson to learn. So last we saw, Jonah was sitting there on the hill, you know, arms crossed, watching Nineveh, pouting for his enemies to be destroyed, mad at God who seemed to care about Ninevites too. And there on the hill, Jonah was hot, and it was hot too. But luckily, as he sits there, this big leafy bush grows, the story says, to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was very happy about the bush. (laughs) All was right in the world. It's the little thing sometimes, right? But the next morning, Jonah wakes up, and he finds that the bush has withered and died. And now he is, again, so very, very mad and very, very sad. He loved that plant and its shade. And so God asks him, like, are you, are you angry, Jonah? And Jonah says, yes, I'm angry enough to die. <laughs> I've been there. Uh, Jonah is very relatable oftentimes. But then God responds. And this is the very last verses in the book. Um, and it's strange and it's wild, but it is God throwing some shade Jonah's way, just a little different kind of shade. And so the Lord says this. Jonah, you're concerned about the bush, which you did not labor for, and you did not grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And then asks, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left? They're a little misguided, yes. And also many animals. And that's how the book ends. That's the end of the book of Jonah. God just drops the mic. And God says, you know, oh, you small-minded, ethnocentric, religious Jonah. I care about the Ninevites. Of course I do. Even though they might be a little misguided, I did not have to send a whale to them. They are 120,000 human beings that I love, I'm concerned about, and I want the best for. And that's God's closing argument. And I love that. And besides, God says, And there are also many animals in Nineveh. (laughs) If you can't get your head around loving human beings, at least think of the puppies, God says. All of them are very good boys and girls, too, uh, even if the Labradors are a little misguided sometimes. And that message that God loves the Ninevites, too, was so radical in their day, but it was also so incredibly important that the author of Jonah knew that they had to slip it in a little unexpectedly under the radar to surprise us, to make us laugh a little bit, but... Most importantly, to sharply challenge us and subvert the places where religion can often take people. To tell us that it's not about us versus them, it is simply us. That we can get so caught up in words of the Lord that we forget the most central word of all, which is love. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Love those across the valley. Love those that consider themselves our enemy. Love those across the Thanksgiving table, even. This is part of what it means to love God. Because everyone we meet is someone who is loved by God, too. And we want to love what God loves. And also, there are many animals caught in the mix, too. That mission of love is God's mission. That's God's transforming purpose. Love is God's word for Nineveh, for Israel, and for us. Loving our neighbor is super hard. It is the hardest. (laughs) Pets are much easier. And so how do we love those across the valley or across the aisle? How do we do right by our neighbor? 
There's so much that we could say to this. But I just want to point us to the thing that Jonah had an opportunity to learn but never could acknowledge. That God is at work in Nineveh and in our neighbor, just as God is at work in ourselves. And insofar as we are able, with graciousness and kindness, we are called to help in that work. So the author, Rosella Haiti White, in this new book that she's written called Love Big, uh, which is both a warm embrace and a helpful kick in the pants, too. She says that human beings are made in the image of God, that they're loved by God, and that God is at work in them. And because of that, in some way, part of having faith in God is having faith in people. Not people in and of themselves, but people intersected by the work of God, people intersected by the divinity that is at work in our world. We're called to have faith in their capacity and their creativity and their capability to be transformed just as ourselves. And love in all of its forms is the engine of that transformation. And I've just been, that, that thought has been turning me over lately. This idea that I'm called in the midst of this world to have faith in the people around me not in them uh, in and of themselves, but in God at work within them, and to do my best to help, to cultivate, to love, to see my neighbor in love as I see myself. And the story of Jonah in so many ways surprises us and invites us to have that kind of a vision. The story of Jonah, the dove, the son of Amittai, the son of faithfulness, ends right there with this cliffhanger. It's a wild fish story if there ever was one, but it ends unfinished. But I think part of that unfinished story is an invitation for us to not be like Jonah, to be different, to be people of peace and people of faith, people of faith in others, in ourselves, and in our God who is at work in all people and is able to transform and liberate and love all and invites us to do the same, to be a part of that big story right here in Denton, in our families and friend circles, in Nineveh, wherever it is that our neighbor is found. And so may we be people who have the faith to do it. May we be people who love our neighbor with faith in the God who is love, who is at work, and who invites us to join for ourselves, for our world, for our neighbor, and for all of the animals, <laughs> too. Let's pray together. Loving, gracious God of all people, that loving our neighbor is hard. But you invite us to be people who love big. God, not in a way that perpetuate cycles of harm but in a way that you empower us to do to be helpful to be healing, to be gracious to stand up for justice but to stand up for justice in a way that respects the humanity of all people God help us to do that that is not something that we can do on our own God I run from that just like Jonah God but your love invites us into courageous love because we are empowered 
by your love that wins, your love that is for all people, that is able to transform and liberate and lift and bring life and help us to be people who do the same in this city, in this community, in our families, in our friends, in our workplaces, in our schools. May we be people who love wide, love deep, God, in love with the height of your vision of love for all people. We pray this in your incredible name. Amen.